0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. One thing about Appalachians, we can get competitive.
1: As far as fresh pizza, I mean, I would say we're kind of toward like number one because we don't box it. We don't prepare it
2: until you get here. How about that? Our first time entering and we got second place. That's a pretty
3: good deal. It wasn't an option. It was just what you did.
4: We're proud of our
0: local food. Love a good hunt and enjoy competition with friends.
3: This week, We learn the rules. Okay, so I'm gonna play the potluck card. Oh. (laughs) Add
5: this.
6: Okay.
0: We have So
5: now you're trying to make someone explode. (laughs) No.
0: And celebrate our victories. Officially
7: Portsmouth is part of the city of the greatest sports situation ever known.
0: These stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Appalachians love to compete. Whether it's rec league softball, a turkey calling contest, or workplace chili cook-offs, mountain folks are in it to win it. But there's more to competition than winning. Later in the show we'll meet competitors who are also keepers of beloved Appalachian traditions. But first, it's time to put on our game faces. And let me tell you, some of the most competitive people I know are mushroom hunters. Each spring, people take to the woods in search of morels, aka dryland fish, molly moochers, hickory chickens, no matter the name. Morels are a seasonal favorite throughout Appalachia, and they inspire all kinds of competition. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave went to the Mountain Mushroom Festival in Irvine, Kentucky. She found people looking for the most mushrooms, the biggest mushrooms, and the tastiest way to eat mushrooms.
1: Up on a stage tucked underneath the tent, John Allen is preparing a cream sauce, chock full of morel mushrooms. The cooking demonstrations are in full swing.
7: Now whenever I'm doing a cream sauce, I actually, when I'm thinning it out, I always go about one step thinner than I want my final sauce to be.
1: This is John's tenth year demonstrating at the the festival, which celebrates local traditions around morel mushrooms. Morels are a type of wild mushrooms that can be found in the forests of Appalachia in the springtime. They're often identified by their honeycomb-like caps. They can be smaller than a fingertip and bigger than a hand. And they're prized for their meaty texture and their nutty, buttery flavor. For his dish, John layers the morel cream sauce over a piece of sourdough bread and tops that with a slice of tomato and fried morels. It's a note to the Kentucky hot brown, made with Estill County morels.
7: Uh, We're we'll gonna call it the uh, Estill Brown,
8: why not? Y'all see that at all? How's that look? Yeah, yeah. it's
1: really good. <laughs> While John enjoys sharing his creation with hungry festival-goers, he's also vying for the top prize in the mushroom cook-off. He enters the cook-off every year, and a few of his dishes have won him a blue ribbon.
7: I did a a, a morel-stuffed homemade ravioli once. I I like that. I one year did a sausage made with wild turkey. Cranberries and morel mushrooms and then cased it up and then cooked it up up like you want a sausage. That was really creative and I had a good time with that one. That's probably one of my favorites.
1: These days, John's considered a veteran of the Mushroom Festival. But it wasn't until he moved to Estill County in 2006 that he became interested in hunting and cooking morels. And as someone who didn't grow up in the community, getting information on how to find morels wasn't easy.
7: When I first moved here, people still guarded it like uh, you know it was some sort of well-kept family secret until everybody looked around and realized, oh oh gosh, no one knows how to do this. so uh, slowly people have been a little nicer, a little more kind about teaching younger folks how to do this stuff. Uh, but everybody's afraid to find their honey holes, so that's kind of what it comes down to.
1: Morel hunting can bring out people's competitive side. That's partly because morel season is so short, about three to four weeks. But it's also because it takes a lot of skill and effort to find these tasty fungi.
2: It takes a special eye. They change colors throughout the season. They're under the leaves, they're up next to stumps. They don't just pop out there for you to see and find.
1: That's Tina Carolyn. Tina was born and raised in Estill County, and she comes from a long line of mushroom hunters.
2: My papal took me as a little girl, and then I took my kids, and my mom goes. And so we kind of just make it a family affair. And after Easter, after we did our big Easter egg hunt for the kids, then a big truckload of us all loaded up, and we went mushroom hunting. So.
1: Tina's been demonstrating on the food stage of the festival for about 15 years. Today, she and her aunt, Jen Collins, are sharing their family recipe for fried morels.
2: I would say it's a secret recipe, like the KFC or something, but it's not really. It's just uh, flour and cornmeal. So we're going to put a little oil in the skillet.
1: Once the oil heats up, Jen fills the skillet with morels that have been coated in the flour and cornmeal mixture. As the mushrooms turn a golden brown, Tina tells the audience that when her family goes mushroom hunting, it's always a competition.
2: who finds the first, who finds the largest, who finds the most, who finds the smallest. So we kind of just make it a fun event when we go the woods together.
1: As Tina describes it, her family can get pretty serious about it. She was quick to respond when an audience member asked if she would ever wait to pick a mushroom. you don't wait
9: the size is. No, don't wait because somebody else is
1: going to get it.
2: Yeah, you get it when the getting's good. Yeah.
1: The mushrooms they typically find are pretty small, only about an inch high. But one time, Tina's dad found a surprise, growing in a rotted tree in her grandmother's apple orchard.
2: And there was a mushroom there that I think it measured out, it was bent over a little bit, but we measured it out 12 inches. He had it put in the paper, and that's probably been 20-plus years ago by now. And that's probably the biggest one we
1: have ever found. Along with the mushroom cook-off, the Mountain Mushroom Festival hosts competitions for who can bring in the biggest morel and the most morels by weight. At noon on the first day of the festival, the contest board showed the leading totals were 9 by 7 inches for the largest single morel and 24 pounds for the most weight. While Tina and her family make morel hunting a contest amongst themselves, none of them have ever entered any of the festival competitions. And have you ever entered the cook-off?
2: I have not. We have not ever entered. I just thought of it today. It was actually the first time I thought, hmm, we might should have uh, fried some up earlier and entered them just to give a few people a run for their money, because everybody likes country cooking. I mean, who doesn't like
1: plain old just country cooking? Up on the food stage, the first batch of fried morels is almost finished.
2: We'll try to make sure we get enough samples for everybody, at least get a taste. I mean, you come to the Mushroom fest, we at least want to taste the mushroom.
1: But before Tina and her Aunt Jen pass the morels out to the audience, they slip a couple to the festival judges. For the first time, they've decided to enter the cook-off. And just a few minutes later, one of the festival volunteers comes up on the stage.
10: So I'm going to interrupt just for a second, just to announce the winners. We had three people enter our cooking contest. Um, Entry number one was, of course, John Allen's hot brown from this morning's presentation. And he got a perfect score, a 36. So he actually got first place.
1: Another blue ribbon for John. They announced that the next entry came in third, which means...
10: And our third entry are these two beautiful ladies here with second place prize.
1: While Tina and her Aunt Jen didn't win first place, they did earn themselves a red ribbon and some bragging rights.
2: How about that? Our first time entering, and we got second place. That's a pretty good deal. Now we have award-winning mushrooms.
1: And since the fried morels were a family recipe, maybe they can share those bragging rights. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Irvin, Kentucky.
0: Ever live in a place where there's a competition between two restaurants, and people sort of decide which team they're on? That's what's happening in Wheeling, West Virginia. Folkways reporter Zach Harold says people there are passionate about their pizza. That's because an accident of history led to a new style. Consider it Appalachia's contribution to America's great regional pizza traditions. And it goes by the name Carlos Famous.
1: You want a pepperoni on it? Yes. And and name? Zach.
11: If you need some reading material, while waiting on your lunch at De Carlo's Famous Pizza in downtown Wheeling, West Virginia, might I suggest the big plaque just left of the front door. It tells the whole history of Ohio Valley Pizza, a regional cuisine with a story that begins just up the road in Steubenville, Ohio, in the late 1800s. That's when the De Carlos left their home in Sora, Italy to come to the United States. They opened a little grocery store to serve their fellow immigrants. The store became renowned for its Italian bread, which got so popular, the family converted the whole business to a bakery, making bread as well as cakes, donuts, and cookies. Then came World War II. Primo DiCarlo found himself stationed in his ancestral homeland, and it was there he discovered a delicacy called pizza. Primo returned home determined to get in the pizza business. He borrowed some cookie sheets from the bakery, as well as the family bread dough recipe, and started tinkering. But the DeCarlos ran into a problem. They didn't have a pizza oven. By the time the crust was as crispy as Primo liked, the cheese on top was burned. So he just added the cheese after it came out of the oven. Cold cheese on a hot crust. The family had single-handedly, and more or less accidentally, created a brand new kind of pizza that would eventually take the region by storm. It would come to be known as Ohio Valley Pizza or Wheeling Pizza, but more often than not, it would be called DeCarlo's Pizza. H- hold on, I think my order's up.
5: Is. It's
11: us. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Anyway, Primo opened the first store in Steubenville in 1945. Then he and his kid brother, Galdo, opened another store in downtown Wheeling four years later. It's only expanded from there. There are now DiCarlo's franchises and imitators all over Ohio and West Virginia, and their numbers are increasing by the day. There's even a location in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina now. The DiCarlo family hopes their cold cheese pizza will soon take its place in the pantheon of American pizza styles, alongside New York's big floppy slices, Chicago's deep dish, and Detroit's thick crusts. But here's the thing. According to locals, Not all DeCarlo's are selling the same pizza. There are subtle differences in the crust, the sauce, the cheese. So if Ohio Valley Pizza is about to go national, which is the real deal? I decided to hit the road to find out, you know, for journalism. I came to the downtown location at the suggestion of local journalist Jeremy Morris. He wrote a pretty extensive history of the Ohio Valley Pizza phenomenon for the website WeLunk.
7: Go grab uh, uh, a couple slices and, and watch the barges and and look at the uh, architecture on the island there's no finer way to to spend a lunch hour or an evening in wheeling than some de carlos on the river
11: so that's exactly what i did took my pizza down to the riverfront where uh, unfortunately for radio some guys were power washing the sidewalks it was here i took my first bite and it was revelatory the crust was way crispier than i expected You could still see the individual shreds of cold cheese. That cheese was salty and chewy, calling attention to itself in a way that melted cheese just never does. My pizza research was only beginning, though. Another name that comes up quite often when you're discussing Ohio Valley pizza is Patsy's in Elm Grove. I got Wheeling native Patrick Yoho to give me the scoop on this place. I met up with him as he waited on slices in the parking lot.
8: If you pull in here and wait for pizza, um, you're going to be sitting here for 45 minutes. Uh, they, you, know, you call in, then you, you get a number. You, you order what you want, and they give you a number, and we're number 74.
11: Patsy's used to be a DiCarlo's. Galdo DiCarlo originally opened this shop before turning over the reins to employee Pasquale Vespa. Patsy for short. The family did that sometimes. But these franchise agreements weren't as heavy-handed as you might see with a national fast food chain today. Owners like Patsy had the freedom to make small tweaks where they saw fit.
8: Patsy's is different. Uh, The sauce is different. The cheese is kind of like crumbled instead of grated like long slices. (laughs) Uh, And the, the sauce is spicier. It's got a green pepper kind of kick to it. And the crust is... Airy, thin most of the time, and very crispy, like and yes, yeah, it's super thin. That other
11: voice is, is Molly Poffenberger. She's originally from Charleston, but moved to Wheeling after college.
9: Scared me to death as a transplant. I was like intimidated by the whole thing because somebody was like, "This is what you have to do," and there's no extra toppings. Like if you were to say, "Can I get black olives?" Oh, no, or, no, "Oh my thing gosh," thing they would. That's a, you.
8: Yeah, that's the thing. It's very different too. That the it's it's pepperoni cheese. Uh, in the last uh, ten years, they ten or fifteen years, they've added uh, pepper rings that you can get on the side in a bag, and you can
11: put. There's on. a reason uh, so little has changed, as employee Erica Mitchum told me.
1: It's you know you don't fix it if it's not broke. You know, as far as fresh pizza, I mean, I would say we're. Kind of toward, like, number one, because we don't box it. We don't prepare it until you get here. So it's not like it sits on the oven.
11: Now, Patrick, being a seasoned Patsy's veteran, had a suggestion to make the Thank pizza taste up. even fresher.
8: You can't see it on the radio, but there you go. You can see the it. It's crumbly.
11: He got a plastic bag of extra cheese to sprinkle on top.
8: Okay, so sometimes it comes with a lot of cheese, sometimes it doesn't. It kind of depends on who's working.
9: And I feel like when you pick it up, a lot of the cheese can fall
1: off. So.
11: I will say the, um, the cold, added cold cheese and cold pepperoni. We add something to it. It does. Now, by this point, I'd eaten pizza for both lunch and dinner, and I still had one more stop on my tour. The DeCarlos in Wellsburg, West Virginia. I came here at the suggestion of my friend Candace Nelson. You might know her as the author of the West Virginia Pepperoni Roll book, but she's also a Wellsburg native and a diehard hard fan of the De Carlos up here.
5: You know, growing up, De Carlos for us was a treat. There's something about knowing on payday you got to go to the De Carlos, and even if you had to wait for an hour, it was worth it because you know when you get home, you have the best tasting pizza that you're gonna have until the next time you can afford this special treat.
11: When I arrived, I found Mark Vaughn working the ovens just like he has for the last 20 years. He told me this is one of the most traditional to Carlos, originally opened by Galdo himself back in the day before it was taken over by current owner, Tim Morris.
12: Yeah, same oven, everything's pretty much the same. A couple updates here and there, paint jobs and whatnot, but...
11: By this point in the day, I'd eaten a slice of pizza for almost every hour I'd been awake. So this time I just ordered one.
8: My favorite, extra cheese and mushrooms.
11: I I ate it in what's apparently the customary way, standing in the parking lot, box on the trunk. And it was crispy and cheesy and chewy. The mushrooms lended some extra flavor and texture. It was delicious just like all the other pizza I'd had that day. Now, I'm not trying to cop out here. Each of the three locations I visited did have subtle differences, but I, I don't think I can say one is better than the other. Let's say Ohio Valley Pizza does go national. When they get that first De Carlos in Sioux Falls or Pensacola, pizza lovers are going to rave over that crispy crust the tangy tomato sauce, the cold cheese. They won't know whether they got the downtown version or the Elm Grove version or the Wellsburg version. Maybe a few of them will be inspired to trace this pizza back to its source, and that's when they'll discover all that nuance that the people of the Ohio Valley, the true connoisseurs, have been debating for decades. Everybody else? they're just going to be happy they got a darn good pizza. From the cold cheese pizza capital of the world, I'm Zach Herald for Inside Appalachia.
2: When the moon hits your eye Like a big pizza pie That's
0: Just a note on Dean Martin, whose famous song, That's Amore, we're hearing. Martin was born and grew up in Steubenville, Ohio, which falls within Appalachia. It's also less than an hour from Wheeling. So Zach points out there's a not-zero chance that when Dean Martin sings That's Amore, he's picturing De Carlos. Those last two stories came to us from our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. You can see photos of mushroom hunters and Zach's hunt for the best cold cheese pizza at our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, We'll visit an elementary school in Southern Ohio, where fifth graders are required to get up on stage and perform a song. Some students sing in Welsh.
4: Uh, I think it's important because since the Welsh basically, like, founded basically this area, and I think it's great to, like, support that.
0: That's after a break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Eisteddfod is probably not a word that rolls off the tongue of everyone in Appalachia. But in Wales, it refers to a traditional music competition that goes back nearly a thousand years. Immigrants brought the tradition to southern Ohio, where it's endured for generations. Thanks in part to some brave kids. FolkWiz reporter Capri Cafaro has this story.
9: The auditorium at Westview Elementary School in Jackson, Ohio is at capacity. At least a hundred parents, grandparents, brothers, and sisters are here to watch their family members perform. Billy Witt is singing Callan Lawn, a Welsh song about valuing the little things in life. Billy wasn't crazy about the idea of getting up and singing this song in front of this crowd, but he seems resolute, determined to get through Callan Lawn and be done with his performance.
4: Uh, I sung Colin Lawn because my friend was going to sing this song, but he didn't know how to pronounce, like, any of the words, so I was singing it to him for him to, like, try to figure it out. And Mr. Kugel overheard me, and he asked me if I wanted to try to sing that.
9: Mr. Kugel is the fifth-grade music teacher. You'll hear from him later.
4: And at first I was kind of, not really, but then he kind of talked me into it.
9: Even though it took some convincing to get Billy to sing the Welsh song, he saw some value in doing it.
4: Uh, I think it's important because since the Welsh basically, like, founded basically this area, and I think it's great to, uh, like, support that and, like, have a bunch of different things, like the estedfod to keep that tradition going.
9: Getting up in front of a crowd and singing is part of a Welsh music tradition called the estedfod. Let me say that slowly for you. I. Said. Fad. It has an important place in Jackson, Ohio, culture because almost two centuries ago, over 3,000 Welsh immigrants arrived in southern Ohio and brought with them the centuries-old tradition. This Isteadfod performance is from 1947 in Wales.
11: With the traditional trumpet call to the four winds, Wales's week-long nationalist festival is opened at Colwyn Bay. A crowd of 12,000, including visitors from all over the world. ...gather at the legendary Gorseth Circle to witness Wales's greatest national institution. The Estetheford Choir leads the crowd singing Wales's national anthem, another chapter added to the ancient history of Wales.
9: To this day, the Eisteddfod still happens every year in Wales, just like it does in Jackson, Ohio. The ISTED Fod has been part of education here in Jackson for the last 96 years. During a break between shows, I met Catherine Smalley. Every child back when we were in school,
3: 55 years ago, I graduated, so it's been a while. But everyone sang a solo. It wasn't an option. It
9: was just what you did. Catherine Smalley came to this year's ISTED Fod to watch her grandson sing in the performance. She says the event has changed a bit over the decades. They've given some of the kids other options by singing duets or quartets or
3: whatever, which is good. That at least gets them up there.
9: In today's version of the Isted Fod, students of Jackson City Schools are required to participate in all five years of elementary school. The students aren't judged, not yet. That happens later when they're in high school. For now, they're just performing songs like Billy Witt. So
6: the Welsh song that they sang was is called Callan Lan um, and the translation rough translation of that is that uh, the singer doesn't need material things. Um, they just need a pure heart they don't need gold or silver or pearls and uh, in order to have a, a happy life.
9: That's Sam Kugel. Billy mentioned him earlier as Mr. Kugel. Sam's a music teacher in the schools and he teaches students the melodies. He gets some help teaching them the words. He turns to Dan Rothenham, a professor based in Wales, Dan helps students with Welsh pronunciation.
5: What was important was the pronunciation regarding um, Calon land. So, um, you know, doing a lot of enunciating and showing them what some of the words meant that kind of sound similar in English so that they could kind of relate and go oh well that's a really easy word for me to know that I know and use every day um here in southeast Ohio so if I've learned the the Welsh word then um hopefully we have like a a, an impact on them especially given the the Welsh heritage and at one point there would have been a a lot of Welsh spoken so it was really nice to be able to, to to do those things.
9: Starting in the sixth grade, participating in the ISTED fund is no longer required. At that point, students can choose to continue to participate, and the ISTED fund shifts from just being a performance to becoming a competition. My name is Camden Robinson, and I am a sophomore at Jackson High School. Camden says being required to get on stage in elementary school gave him the building blocks for success in high school and beyond. I don't think I would have ever proceeded in doing um, the ISTED if I wasn't required in elementary school, because it requires a lot of
6: confidence to stand up in front of all these people that you know or don't know, even to just sing or play your instrument, like it's a lot, and it takes a lot of building up to get that. Like it, I still struggle with like the confidence to get up in front of people and sing or play my instrument. It just takes a lot, and I, I don't think I ever could have done it without being without doing it in elementary school.
9: And it's a good thing Camden has become more comfortable in front of a crowd, since the high school fad can be a more stressful experience. The performance is put on for a community-wide audience and each student or group is judged. Having actual judges judging us, deciding who is playing the
6: best and what can be fixed, what can be critiqued and everything along those lines, whereas in elementary school it's more of you're doing it for your friends and your family and to
9: keep culture and heritage.
5: One thing I really do, like, like about it is that, like, it really helps with stage fright, because that's what a lot, like, a lot of people struggle with that.
9: Naomi McGee is in fourth grade.
5: Like, uh, that's how I lost stage fright, was going up in front of
4: a
9: big crowd and then realizing it's fun. Eyestead may be difficult to pronounce, but his impact is simple to explain. In Jackson, Ohio, the Eyestead brings a sense of purpose and pride to those who participate. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Capri Cafaro.
0: Another competitive tradition that's endured for generations is weekly board game night. Whether with family or friends, we play Monopoly, Settlers of Catan, sometimes even Candyland. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett reported on a board game that matches West Virginia's favorite cryptids with some of its favorite places to eat.
6: So everyone has five cards, and the first thing you need to do is just make sure you have at least one dish in your hand.
5: There are four of us, sitting around a wooden table, where a colorful board has been arranged.
6: And as long as everyone has a dish,
5: we're playing a game called Hungry for Humans.
6: Then you will select one and
12: place it above your monster board.
5: It's my first time playing, and I'm up against the two creators of the game. Jared Kaplan and Chris Kincaid.
12: Mine was slightly hungrier than yours. I get to go up six.
5: The odds are not in my favor.
12: I'm going
6: to say you look hungry, and I'm going to make you eat that extra chunky milk.
5: (gasps) So then I have to go back? You go back one. What? (laughs) But now, we're in Chris's home in Morgantown, West Virginia. His basement is a board gamer's paradise. A giant game cupboard lines the wall, and the table we're playing on has been designed specifically for the activity. Here's Jared.
6: Us, as the players, we are the humans. We each have a monster friend who wants to eat humans, but if you feed it enough good food it'll satisfy its human hunger and it won't eat anybody.
5: Good food like a sundae from Ellen's Ice Cream in Charleston or a burger from the farmer's daughter in Cape and Bridge.
6: However, if you feed it too much too fast, it becomes too powerful and just explodes. If you feed it the wrong things, because there are some nasty foods in here, then it becomes hangry and it just gets mad at you and it will eat you.
5: Oh, we got a minus two. What is that one?
12: This is toothpaste with an orange juice chaser.
6: Ooh. Don't know
5: if you've ever
12: had a glass of orange juice after brushing your teeth. Horrible, maybe the worst.
5: <laughs> yep. Jared says um, they wanted the game to celebrate their home state and its local restaurants.
12: I
6: love food, so um, I just started thinking of uh, a game that involved food,
5: specifically food from West Virginia.
6: Wouldn't it be cool if the biscuits and gravy were from Tudors? And then it was like, yeah. That would be cool. What if everything was from a West Virginia restaurant? And then it's sort of built from there.
5: Cryptids are another important part of the game.
6: Mothman, I think, is maybe people's favorite card in the game.
5: The Grafton Monster, Sheep Squatch, Mothman, and Flatwoods Monster are all special power cards that give you an extra edge on your competitors. In real life, cryptids are only rarely spotted, and it's the same in the game.
12: What do you, do you hear that? The
5: buzzing?
12: No, the sheep squatch coming to scare Jared out of the meal.
5: Chris and Jared met several years ago in their hometown of Beckley. Chris says they bonded over their love for board games.
12: We've played games with people from very different walks of life, from very different places, um, with very different belief structures, and it's great, nobody cares about any of it. We're just there to rob the bank or, or rescue the princess.
5: As a kid, Chris would play games with his dad and two younger brothers.
12: It was always associated in my life with happiness and togetherness because we grew up uh not super well off, so a board game was about as much entertainment. We weren't going off to taking trips and vacations all the time. We played Uno till we ruined decks.
5: Now Chris is a family doctor and a professor at West Virginia University.
12: Honestly, board games are my escape. My career's pretty taxing, especially lately. Um, as far as time-consuming and um, energy-consuming. And that's just, it is how I recharge my batteries.
5: He's carried on the family game tradition with his own kids.
12: Like even now, my kids have a board game shelf over there that's starting to rival mine.
5: Jared works in marketing at the resort at Glade Springs in Daniels, and he has his own marketing business. He says he was never very good at video games, so he played board games instead.
6: For someone, someone like me who has a ton of anxiety, I actually enjoy being around people more than you would probably think. That's what I love about board games is it brings people together.
5: Jared says for him, board games aren't just something he pulls out at the holidays.
6: It's really the anchor right now for me that brings my friends together is like, hey, I'm going to have a game night and people are excited about it and want to come over.
5: At one of these game nights in Beckley several years ago, none of their other friends showed up. So it was just Chris and Jared. They didn't end up playing anything.
6: But we just started talking about games, and I told Chris about an idea that I had for our first game.
5: That was the start of their company, Lonely Hero Games. And after diving deeper into the world of board games, they quickly learned that a good game needs good artwork.
6: If your art in your game is not good, you're going to hear about
5: it. Morgantown artist Liz Pavlovic was the perfect fit for their second game, Hungry for Humans. She'd never illustrated a board game before, but she's known around the state for her funky renditions of West Virginia food, like pepperoni rolls, and cryptids, like Mothman.
3: I just really like celebrating the, um, I don't know, weird stuff in the state and the stuff that maybe people don't know about, especially if you're not from here.
5: Today is Liz's first time playing the game, like me, but she seemed to be getting the hang of it.
3: Okay, so I'm going to play the potluck card. Oh. <laughs> and add this.
6: Okay. We
5: have... So now you're trying
6: to make someone explode. No, <laughs>
5: that's a seven. Liz's monster friend is none other than Flurbin Gusselpot, a peculiar creature loosely inspired by a bat. It's her personal favorite.
3: So he has like a really weird nose, and uh, otherwise I guess sort of like a reptile body with a horse tail um, and some fangs and like a really long tongue and really long fingers. He's purple purple with spots, orange spots.
5: (laughs) When Hungry for Humans launched on Kickstarter last fall, they received an unexpected amount of support for the game, specifically from West Virginians.
6: Sometimes I reflect on that and feel extremely lucky to be from West Virginia and have our community because if you're creating a game in somewhere like New York, it's like, well, everywhere you look, people are doing that. In West Virginia, though, people take a lot of pride, it seems, in people who are doing things that are different and
12: unique and they want to support each other and lift each other up. And then, you know, you kind of want to live up to that. Well, we better make it the best darn game we can and really mean it.
5: Chris says he enjoys playing hungry for humans, but he rarely wins. And indeed, Chris's monster, Porgus Beanhammer, is the first one to explode. Don't blow me up, blow him up, because
12: I I look hungry.
5: That leaves me, Jared, and Liz
12: at this point, I'm rooting for all of you to join me in the grave.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
12: it's a seven, so it's going to be four each, which is going to blow.
6: Whoa.
5: So Can I play yuck? We're all about to lose. Yes.
6: Okay, yes. So okay. first do that.
5: Okay, I'm going to
12: play yuck oh, on the three. Oh, man.
6: Is Perfect. that
5: good? Yeah. yeah that yeah, means so
6: you win. What's
12: the means? Yes, you win. I can't
5: believe mm. that.
12: <laughs> good use of the yuck <laughs> card. Yeah, if you, you almost played the yuck. Yeah.
5: We were they all... may have let me win, but <laughs> I'd like to think otherwise. <laughs> Chris and Jared's game, Hungry for Humans, will be available this summer. And even though it isn't even on the shelves yet, they already have ideas for more new games.
12: I don't know how many he has. I have at least 15 (laughs) right now. If you take off these slats, there's a, a skeleton of a game under this table right now that I've been working on.
5: For Inside Appalachia, I'm Claire Hazlitt.
12: You know I love that organic cooking. I always ask for more. And they call me Mr. Natural. On down to the health food store.
7: I
0: Those last couple of stories are part of our Folkways reporting project. Check out Inside Appalachia's Instagram account to see photos of Appalachian music, food, and crafts. Find it on Instagram at inappalachia. Last year, I totaled my car when I hit a deer on the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's an unfortunate part of life in Appalachia. Now, though, officials at the Great Smoky Mountains Association are embarking on a new strategy to reduce animal deaths on North Carolina highways. Matt Piken reported this for Blue Ridge Public Radio.
7: Frances Feigert still remembers words from her mother along drives they took through the countryside.
3: We'd see a dead fox or a dead coyote, and she would say, I wish automobiles had never been invented. And that stuck in my mind.
7: Over the years, as Feigert traveled the world as a magazine editor, she came to see animal deaths as a global problem. But as creative services director with the Great Smoky Mountains Association, Feigert saw a unique way to contribute to the effort of stemming those deaths in this region. Feigert is the author of A Search for Safe Passage, an illustrated paperback book written mainly for preteens. The story casts bears, deer, foxes, raccoons, turtles, woodchucks, and other wildlife as characters in a story of ever-present struggle, animal versus motor vehicle. The Great Smoky Mountains Association is the publisher.
3: It occurred to me that if an 11-year-old is reading this book today— In another 11 years, they're going to be graduating from college, and maybe they're going to have the wildlife engineering degree or the road ecology degree that's going to be part of what solves these problems.
7: The development of the interstate highway system, 41,000 miles of coast-to-coast, border-to-border roadway, had a severe impact on the travel patterns of wildlife.
0: I-40 is a death trap for a lot of wildlife, particularly near Great Smoky Mountains
7: National Park, which is incredibly biologically diverse. Jeffrey Hunter is a senior program manager with the National Parks Conservation Association. He said animal deaths in this region were largely anecdotal until 2019. Since then, weekly driving surveys and 120 cameras along a 28-mile stretch of I-40 have put hard numbers behind the deaths. Hunter said officials recorded 103 dead bears over three years. Seven wilderness and conservation groups are behind a coalition to stem those numbers. On one end, they're lobbying legislators to fund wildlife overpasses and culverts. On the other, they're appealing to drivers to slow down. I think the Safe Passage Collaborative is an example of how organizations with
0: different cultures, different missions, different priorities can come together in common cause
7: and solve a seemingly intractable issue. That's also the hope behind Feigert's book. No animals are struck or killed in the book. Instead, wildlife creatures seemingly with little in common form a forest council to steer one another to safe passage over and under roadways and also keep an eye on how humans help or hurt their
3: efforts. At first I thought I wasn't the right person to do it, and then I thought about it and realized I was the perfect person to do it because I'm a writer, but I don't know the science. I do not have all those details in my head that would keep me bogged down in the weeds. And so I was able to write it from a very general perspective that would be perfect for a fifth grader. I did study fables and morality plays when I was an English lit major. And I think a lot of that stuff came back into play when I started working on this.
12: I am a dear by the side
7: Feigert's commitment to the issue is so inspired, she went so far as to compose and record a song to complement the book. The Asheville band The Fates recorded it and made a video for Safe Passage, Animals Need a Hand. Hunter said the federal government recently set aside $350 million for wildlife management efforts around this issue. But that competition for this money is stiff, with needs all over the country similar to those within the Great Smokies. Hunter said North Carolina is about to construct its first wildlife overpass at Stacoa Gap, where the Appalachian Trail crosses State Highway 143. Feigert lives just over the North Carolina state line in Flag Pond, Tennessee. She said her work around this issue is far from over.
3: This is, for me, a great service to be able to commit myself to something that I'm passionate about, make it a part of my job, and make a difference. I like to say in collaboration is the salvation of the world. And I think we've got a long way to go, but we have certainly got an amazing start.
7: A search for safe passage has already found its way into the hands of fifth graders in Waynesville and Hendersonville, and some of those students from Hendersonville recently spoke on the issue with Governor Roy Cooper. I'm Matt Pikin, BPR News.
0: On a baseball field, there's no higher power than the umpire. They call the balls the strikes and the outs. And they take the heat when players or fans don't agree. Virgil Broughton worked as an umpire for 38 years. He called everything from Little League games all the way up to the Major Leagues before retiring to Elkins, West Virginia. In 2018, Roxy Todd met up with Broughton to talk baseball and being an
13: umpire. To be a successful umpire, you got to live the life, clean living, and know the rule book up and down and try to treat the the spectators and the ballplayers with respect.
10: Virgil Broughton spent the first few years of his life up on the logging camp town of Spruce in Pocahontas County. Back then, he says he didn't even know what baseball was.
13: Uh, We didn't even have a radio. The only thing you had to do up there, you either go fishing or hunting.
10: But then his family moved to the town of Elkins, where baseball was a big deal. I
13: was 10, 11, 12 years old, and I played for a local Pepsi Cola bottling company, and
10: what do you mean you played for it? Like the Pepsi Cola bottling company sponsored the team?
13: That's right. They sponsored the team, and I was I was their catcher. And uh, I reckon that's how I ended up umpiring. I love being behind the plate because I always said, I want to be where the action is.
10: Then, after high school, he joined the military and was stationed in Germany. He became a catcher for one of the Army baseball teams and got to travel throughout Europe.
13: I liked it because it got me away from the Army base, and I met new friends.
10: One day, the umpire didn't show up, so Broughton volunteered.
13: But I fell in love with umpire and baseball, and I traveled a lot, and I made extra money.
10: That stint in the Army led to an umpire career that stretched almost four decades. After the service, he worked high school and college baseball. Eventually, he got a contract to umpire for the Cincinnati Reds. Did you ever get hit?
13: Several times. Several times. That's when you respect good catchers. I, 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 I'm I very fortunate. I, I got the umpire behind uh, Joe Ferguson, which was an All-American from the L.A. Dodgers, and Johnny Bench. He was a catcher for Cincinnati when I went into professional ball. When you have guys like that, they protect you. you <laughs> and you better keep a good relation for them because they could accidentally let one go by and put you down on your back.
10: His favorite part of the job was meeting famous players. But the hardest thing was being away from his family.
13: The minor leagues is is rough on umpires and ballplayers, because in the minor leagues, you get a schedule every two weeks for the following two weeks.
10: His schedule bounced him around all over the Southeast, in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Alabama. Broughton says this was on purpose, to make sure that umpires don't stay in any one town too long or get attached to a particular team, so they'll be more objective when they make their calls. His wife stayed back in Elkins, raising four kids on her own for eight months of the year. The only times they got to see each other was when she came to one of his games.
13: She drove from here to Asheville, North Carolina, to see me work a ball game on a Friday night. With the Fort Kisner car, no interstates, just drive straight down. And the next day, I was in Mobile, Mobile, Alabama. The next day, which meant I left that night to go to Mobile, and Sunday, I was back in Charlotte, North Carolina.
10: Then, when he was in the major leagues, it became even tougher to see his family.
13: In pro ball, I never did a part with another married man. They was either divorced or had never got married.
10: One tip Broughton has for any umpires who do have family who come to one of their games, never walk into the stadium together. He learned that his wife couldn't even sit near him or talk to him during the games, or else one of the disgruntled fans might take it out on her. If you're going to be an umpire, Broughton says, you have to have thick skin. Still, working the big leagues for only a few years was enough. Broughton decided to return to West Virginia.
13: That was a rough life, being away from home, and I had two young boys here playing little league, and I was bouncing around over the country, and I wasn't a happy camper with that. So I I packed it in after about four years and come back home.
10: After 38 years as an umpire, he opened a sporting goods store in Elkins. The store is still open today, and two of his sons run it now. He says he's happier back home though he does still miss being close to the action right behind home plate. So every now and then he umpires for local little league games where he says he still gets flack from some of the most intense fans parents for inside Appalachia. I'm Roxy Todd in Elkins.
0: That interview was from 2018. Virgil Broughton passed away in January of 2020 at the age of 81. Along with his years working as an empire, Urgell was remembered for his public service as mayor and as a city councilman in Elkins. Appalachia's connection to professional football has always been a little loose. Lots of pro players have come out of Appalachia, but there's really only one Appalachian NFL team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Or two, if you count the Atlanta Falcons, as a listener recently argued we should. It turns out at least one other professional team has Appalachian DNA. The Detroit Lions. That franchise began as the Portsmouth Spartans in Portsmouth, Ohio, just across the river from Kentucky. Sports fan and
14: WVPB reporter Randy Oe has the story. The football chatter is palpable at the historic Stadium Lunch Tavern in Portsmouth, Ohio. It's a football Sunday in December, and there's memorabilia from two NFL franchises on display. The crowd has come from nearby Municipal Stadium, where the infamous Iron Man game was played. In that contest, the NFL's 1932 Portsmouth Spartans played the same 11 men the entire game and shut out their bitter rivals, the Green Bay Packers, 19 to nothing. That championship game paved the way into dividing the NFL into two divisions, leading to what we now call Super Bowls.
6: We are off and running as another episode of Detroit. City of Champions on Detroit sports planning.
14: historian Charles Avison has brought his podcast Detroit the City of Champions to Portsmouth for a weekend of dedications and remembrances. Portsmouth's NFL franchise became the Detroit Lions, which won the nineteen thirty-five NFL championship. Avison says the 12 or so Spartans turned Lions who played in both championships deserve to be honored as local football heroes.
11: And you literally cannot tell the history of the Detroit Lions without factoring in who the the Portsmouth Spartans team. It wasn't like some random team name that was transferred and they transferred a bunch of equipment in the back of a wagon. This was The players from Portsmouth came to Detroit and they brought with them the rivalries that had been built in
8: Portsmouth
14: players like the legendary Jim Thorpe and Dutch Clark. To remember the Iron Man game and honor those leather helmet-wearing legends, I was part of a volunteer group that raised the funds needed to replace the old crumbling sign that welcomes visitors to the still-in-operation Portsmouth Municipal Stadium. Professor Drew Feit, director of the Center for Public History at Portsmouth Shawnee State University, has worked tirelessly to ensure the Iron Man game and the Spartans-turned-lions who played in it won't be forgotten. Portsmouth uh, really is a football community. It has a really, really
11: rich history. Its history is tied in with the early days of the NFL. And everybody loves the NFL today. And just the fact that Portsmouth had such a fantastic team that uh, really went toe-to-toe with the Green Bay
14: Packers and other greats of the time. You know, cherishing this history and taking care of our stadium here the walls of Portsmouth native Will Malt's restaurant, the Scioto River, are covered with Spartan team pictures and memorabilia. Malt is one of many here thrilled with having a weekend of memories turned into monuments. I'm overwhelmed. I, I, I love the Portsmouth Spartans, and I love the current Detroit Lions, which were the Portsmouth Spartans. We have great camaraderie and great friends from Detroit, and we enjoy ourselves when we get together. Also making the trip in from Detroit is 82-year-old Tom Yurick. In 1985, as a Motor City radio reporter, Urick covered the 1935 Lions team's 50th anniversary reunion, where a few of the old converted Spartan players felt slighted that the Portsmouth Connection legacy to the city of champs was forgotten. Urich promised them then he'd make that right. 88 years later, we're not just dedicating a new sign this weekend, but putting up plaques honoring those players in Tom Urick's name.
7: I told him I would do everything I could. It brings a tear to my eye a little bit to, to help to help uh, Portsmouth know that they were included in the uh, hall of, or in the city of champions. And now it's taken 88 years, but it's now officially Portsmouth is part of the city of the greatest sports situation ever known.
14: Drew fight and I agree, without Tom Urich's tenacity, none of this weekend's small-town, big-emotion events would have happened.
11: He felt that uh, the story of Portsmouth really had, had not gotten the attention that they deserved, and that was what the, the old Spartan players felt as well. And so Tom made them a promise years and years ago that he would do what he could to help keep this history alive, and we're here today to make that, make that happen.
14: The Ironman game was played on December fourth, 1932. The event celebrates its 90th anniversary. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Randy Yohe in Portsmouth, Ohio. What about you? What kind of
0: competitions are happening in your neck of the woods? Maybe you know about a sport or contest we've never heard about. Or maybe someone there makes pizza like nobody else. Tell us about it. Write us at insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Or find us at inappalachia on Instagram and Twitter. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia.
4: Our
0: theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Charlie McCoy, The Steel Drivers, Larry Gross, David Mayfield, and Dean Martin. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at inappalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production
8: of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.